All right, you guys can turn around and, and grab a seat there. I want you to know how much we love having you guys here with us uh, during worship. We, we may just keep you, actually. Uh, <laughs> if they're saying no, they don't want to stay. But we are, uh, I'm going to tell you guys something. I have gotten more comments about what we're getting ready to do uh, than anything else that I've done in the longest time. People love this sermon in the sack thing. I don't really know why, because I don't ever give away any good gifts or anything like that, but uh, you guys know how this works. Basically, I've got something in the sack today that if you can guess what it is, then you get to take it home with you, and you guys know it's always something that's just stupendously amazing. You know, it's one of those lifelong gifts that you'll just keep forever and probably be buried with. So uh, today, here's my clues. Now remember, you can't guess on the first clue, and when you're ready to guess, after the second clue, you can guess... None of this raising hands business. We don't like any of that stuff around here. You can do that over in the children's ministry. But when you're over here, in order to guess, you have to jump up and wave your hands frantically like something major is happening. So, y'all ready? Okay, first clue. You can't guess on this one, so you don't have to crouch just yet. All right, first clue is this. What I have in the sack today, these are, the first ones of these were over 5,000 years ago, and the first ones were used by the ancient Egyptians. So that's what I've got in the sack. First ones are over 5,000, made over 5,000 years ago and used by the ancient Egyptians. All right, second clue, y'all ready? All right, I see the ones ready to crouch there. Here we go. Number two, in the 1850s, that was a little bit before you guys were born, a little history here. In the 1850s, more than half of all these that were made in the world were made in the city of Birmingham. In the 1850s, more than half of all these that were made... See, I could get hard clues because you all guess them too quickly. Neil thinks he knows, but he doesn't. And more than half of these were made, that were made in the world were made in the city of Birmingham. All right, nobody, nobody knows that one. Number three, here's where it's starting to get a little easier. They used to be made of goose feathers. What do you think, Zachary? Feathers. Feathers. <laughs> that's close. Nice tie today, by the way. That's an awesome. That's an awesome tie. You get a guess? Okay, you're getting real close. You're getting real close. Everybody, grab a seat. We'll take another guess. You're getting real close. You're getting one, just one second, Evan. We're getting real close here. All right. The most expensive one ever made was worth over a million dollars, and the largest one ever made was over 18 feet long, and it weighed 82 pounds. You got a guess? A giraffe? No, it's not a giraffe. It's good. It gets a great guess, though. What do you think, Evan? Yeah, they wrote with, what is it called? What do you write with? Come on, Evan, you can get it. He's got, he's, he's got, okay, the, the pen, we'll go with that. You got it for it. There you go. Give Evan a hand today. All right. And Evan, you are going to get one of these wonderful election pens that so many of us have laying around after November. There you go. That's your take home for the day. I don't know if you voted for him or not, but there you go. That's your take home. Now, it's said... That one of the famous, most famous statements about a pen is that it's been said that a pen is mightier than the sword. 
And today we're going to look in Matthew chapter 1. There's a guy named Matthew that was one of Jesus' disciples who wrote down the story of Jesus for us. We call it the book of Matthew because he was the writer. And we're going to look at what Matthew wrote down for us about Jesus today as he took out his version of a pen and began to write on a scroll. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. That's right. This is how we learn about Jesus. And so I want to encourage you today uh, with two things. First of all, uh, listen close. You're going to learn a lot about Jesus today and how he came into the world. Uh, And also, again, as we've already said, that cheating is fine in our church, according to our youth pastor. Now your pastor's going to tell you that stealing is fine, because yet again today we've run out of bulletins, and so you're you're supposed to go and steal your mother or father or grandmother or grandfather's bulletin. If you fill your bulletin out this morning and fill all the blanks in, mom and dad can help you, or moms and dads, by the way, um, then at the end of the service today, Miss Jeannie will be in the back, and she'll have a much better present than a silly old election pen. So let me pray for you guys, and then we'll, we'll send you on your way this morning. Father, thank you for this time to be together, and, and may we fix our eyes now on Jesus. Thank you for guys like Matthew who wrote down his story for us. And we pray that we would learn today, and even more than that, that we would grow in our love for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, moms and dads, you can stand up where they can see you and head your direction if you would. Make sure they all get the right place. All right, and if you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open up to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is where we'll be in our time of the Word this morning. Somebody did. Somebody's little orange Bible at the end of the service here. I'll put it right there. Very good. All right, thank you. You guys got it. Perfect. Evan's got his Bible. That's good. All right, Matthew chapter 1 today. Uh, Here in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew in many ways picks up where the book of Ruth, where we've been the last several weeks, leaves off. In Ruth, we saw at the end of Ruth chapter 4 that Ruth ends with a, a short little genealogy, a list of names that take us from Ruth all the way down to King David, who was a primary figure in the Old Testament and is really important for our understanding of what God was doing in the big picture of bringing Jesus into the world. And so this morning we're going to look at this first part of Matthew chapter 1, and, and you may be like me, as you, as you, if you've uh, had the practice of reading through the Bible during the year, we come to passages like this that are just a big old list of names and we just fly right through them. In fact, we, we probably pretty much check that off our reading list without even really reading it because we go, I don't even know how to pronounce half of these. Now, this is not going to be a pronunciation lesson this morning. I'm going to butcher these just as bad as, as you probably would. Uh, and these guys are all dead, so they don't really care at this point. But, but the idea this morning as we walk through Jesus' family tree here in Matthew chapter 1 is this. I, I want you to see... That God's plan for the baby that was born there in the Bethlehem stable 2,000 years ago, this was not plan B in the mind of God. This was God's plan 
before time began, he had set out the perfect plan for bringing his son into the world. And Matthew, in this first chapter, lays out for us this powerful picture of what God was doing in bringing Jesus into the world. With that in mind, would you stand with me in honor of God's word this morning as we read these first 17 verses? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew records these things. He says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Those are the twelve tribes of Israel, by the way. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. These names should start to sound a little familiar if you've been here with us. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. He's very important. We'll come back to him this morning. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. That's also very crucial. Jeconiah is a crucial name here. We'll come back to him before we finish today. And so after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. 14 generations and you can be seated and father as we explore today the coming of our king into the world lord would you help us to see the glorious process that you began with abraham your covenant promises to abraham were fulfilled in the coming of your son into the world. That all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's descendant. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we glory in what you worked for the good of your people through all these many generations, over thousands of years, and all to bring us salvation. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Let me give you just real quick, just a, a basic timeline that can help you to kind of put the pieces together. If you're kind of a history person and enjoy these kinds of things, if not, just kind of doze off for a minute and we'll come back to the, the story here. Basic timeline for Matthew chapter 1, uh, it starts with Abraham. Abraham, the patriarch, lived about 2000 B.C. This is a real man who lived in real time and had real problems. This was the man that God spoke to and called out of his land in Haran and said, I want you to leave your homeland and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And Abraham, by faith, believed God, got up and followed God, and God blessed him. And we'll see part of that blessing here in just a little bit. Abraham, 2000 B.C. Then 14 generations passed in Abraham's descendants. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob became the 12 tribes of Judah. And we fast forward down to 1000 B.C. And we meet the first of the kings of this nation called Israel. Not the most powerful nation in the world, certainly not the wealthiest or the most well-known, but these were the people that God chose to bring about this plan of salvation, and he brings about this first of these great kings, this man known as King David. A crucial figure for us understanding Matthew chapter 1. We'll come back to him this morning. Then another 14 generations passed, 14 generations of kings, in, one king after another, some good, some bad, and some in between. We'll see that as we walk through this today. And then it comes down to a crucial year in Israel's history, 586 B.C., when the country, the nation of Babylon, the world power of that time, came into Jerusalem, destroyed the city, and carried off the survivors into captivity in Babylon, where they remained for 70 years before they returned to rebuild. And after that time, there's about a 400-year period of time. If you take your Bibles, you're there in Matthew chapter 1. If you look back one page, you've probably got a blank page in your Bible. Or it may say the New Testament on it. That blank page represents 400 years of history in which God was silent. Between Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, there was 400 years of silence. And all that we really know about that time, biblically speaking, is recorded here in Matthew chapter 1, this list of names. 14 generations that passed between Babylon's invasion and the birth of Jesus right around 5 B.C. So there's some key points there. We'll come back to these figures, to Abraham, to David, to those who were living at the time of the Babylonian invasion, and ultimately to Jesus. He is our goal this morning. And so let's get into it. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew gives us his goal for writing here in the very first verse. Matthew was the one of the gospel writers who was writing to a Jewish audience, and his goal was this to prove that Jesus Christ was the long-awaited Messiah who had every right to sit on the throne of King David. This was his goal. And that's why he says from the very beginning, this is the book of the genealogy. This is the story of the origins, literally. This is the story of the origins of Jesus Christ. Two things he says about him, the son of David and the son of Abraham. These are his two goals. First of all, In order to be the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus had to be a descendant of Abraham, the patriarch. Why? Because salvation was to come through the Jews. They were the channel of God's blessing, as we'll see, to the rest of the nations of the world. So the Messiah had to be a Jew, and his heritage had to be established there, a son of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham. Secondly, he had to be a descendant of King David. 
Because the promises made to King David were such that there had to be forever a king to dwell on his throne. That line had to remain unbroken according to the promises of God, as we'll see here this morning. So these are his two goals, son of David, son of Abraham. These are the goals. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we looked at this verse last week. God said to Abraham there in Genesis 12 when he called him out of his homeland to walk by faith. He said to him, I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if you were to walk from Genesis chapter 12 to the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, you would come up with this conclusion. That promise at the end of the book of the Malachi in the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament, that promise remains mostly unfulfilled. Because while the descendants of Abraham in the Old Testament days were meant to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, for the most part they were just a curse to all the peoples of the earth because of their disobedience to God. They were continually turning away from God and turning to idolatry. They were continually rejecting the God who had chosen them to be his people. And this promise at the end of the Old Testament seems to be unfulfilled. And yet God is faithful and he had more in store. I'll leave you with that thought as we move into this first paragraph. The thing that stands out in the first part of this family tree, and just picture in your mind a, a family tree here, these different branches that he's walking us through, leading down to Jesus from Abraham in 2000 B.C. till 2,000 years later when Jesus was born. This first paragraph is striking. Maybe not to us because we read it and we go, well, it just looks like a bunch of names to me. But you've got to understand that the Jewish people to whom Matthew was writing, they were used to these kinds of genealogies. Every family had to be able to establish their part in the heritage of God's people. So it wasn't enough just for you to know who your mother and father were, your grandfather, maybe even your great-grandfather. Not many of us can trace our lineage back farther than maybe three or four generations. But in their day, it was so important for them to be able to trace their lineage back generation after generation after generation to Abraham, that they would know their heritage as the people of God. And that's what Matthew's establishing here for Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. But the striking thing that Matthew does here in this first paragraph is he includes at least four individuals that nobody else who was doing family trees in Matthew's day would have included. When you look in the Old Testament and you see these lists of names, you look in Chronicles and other places and you see these lists of names in the Old Testament, it's always this man beget, this man beget, this man beget, this man. It's a list of men's names one after the other. This was the common practice because family lines were passed through the father. And yet what you find here is that in four different instances here in this first paragraph, Matthew includes the mothers who were involved. And it's not necessarily because these were great and godly women. In fact, probably the opposite is true. Look who he includes. First one that comes, comes there in verse 4. Actually, she appears in verse 5. Actually, I missed one, sorry. Verse 3, I'll get there eventually. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. 
She's the first one that's mentioned. We talked about her story last week. If you read Genesis 39, you'll find the story of Judah and Tamar, who were not husband and wife. They were father-in-law and daughter-in-law. And we talked about the story last week. I'm not going to get into the details today for the sake of time, but it's a pretty hideous story. It's one that would, would make a good soap opera story uh, for today. There's a lot going on there, a lot of scandal and mess. And yet Tamar makes the list here. A woman who pretended to be a prostitute in order to draw in her father-in-law into a relationship that produced these two twin boys, Perez and Zara. That's the first one. Fast forward to the next couple of verses and you find, then we find this man named Salmon who married a woman named Rahab. Now we immediately think of Rahab as a woman of faith, a woman who, and when the Israelites went into this, the, the, the promised land, they began to take over that land and they came to this first city known as Jericho and Rahab was the woman who protected the spies they had sent in to spy out the land. She hid them so that they would not be discovered. We think of her being a woman of faith and yet the Bible constantly reminds us about Rahab. It refers to her so often as Rahab the prostitute. A woman yet again of of ill repute that God used to bring about our salvation. Then we go on to the next verse, and we find a woman we've become very accustomed with over the last several weeks. We find in Boaz was the father of Obed by who? By Ruth. Again, a woman of faith, and yet we will remind ourselves that time and time again in the Old Testament, she's referred to as Ruth the Moabite. She was, from a, she was a descendant of a nation that was known for rampant immorality and wickedness. And so again, God uses someone that we might have passed over to bring about our salvation. But then the last one's really striking, and Jesse the father of David, the king, and we wish he would just stop there. But then he goes on to say, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We know her as Bathsheba. Doesn't even give her name here. He goes so far as to remind us of how she became, came into this relationship with David. It was a relationship of adultery. She was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, David saw her, lusted after her, desired her for himself, took her in, engaged in an affair with her, and then to cover up his affair, he eventually had her husband sent out to the front lines to die in battle and then tried to cover the whole thing up until a year later it was all exposed. And Matthew, rather than covering it up here, displays once again the grace of God in redeeming the ugliest of situations. I point this out because here the, the parts that I believe Matthew's wanting us to really focus in on all involve these four girls. Two things I would say about them. First of all, both Jews and Gentiles were included. Of these four women, we know that at least two of them were not Jewish, which doesn't make a big difference to us. We have to understand that in the Old Testament, for an Old Testament Jew... To be ethnocentric was a normal thing. To marry outside of your bloodline was a very, very serious offense. And yet God uses in these four situations at least two of these women, and perhaps all four. We don't really know the nationality of Tamar, and we're not really sure of the nationality of Bathsheba. They all four could have been Gentiles, and God is incorporating them into his plan. He's bringing them into his plan of salvation it's a beautiful thing. 
But we also see here that both saints and sinners were included. The, he didn't choose the most godly of women here. And in fact, the men are no better. As you walk through this list, you'll see name after name after name that you would have gone, man, I probably would have left that dude out because there's some rough characters in here. But God was in the process of redeeming his people. It's a great reminder of Galatians chapter 3, which says that there is neither Jew nor Greek neither slave nor free, no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Church, hear those words. All the barriers that we erect in our culture, barriers of gender and ethnicity and socioeconomic class and educational status, they all are diminished by the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ's, then, he goes on to say, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is where it comes home to us. We look at this and go, well, I'm not a Jew. What does this have to do with me? He's helping us to understand what Jesus said. He said, who are the sons of Abraham? They're those who walk by faith. Those who walk as Abraham walked. It's not about a bloodline. It's about a faith walk. And so we see it here for us. In the second paragraph, he begins to describe the nobility that led to Jesus. This list of kings beginning with David, the king who was the greatest of the kings and king over Israel in the golden age of Israel when everything was growing and expanding God's people were doing well but he was one in a list of 15 kings here that God lays out in this paragraph. Of these kings we find that eight of them were good kings who honored the Lord, who loved the Lord, who led God's people in serving and worshiping the one true and living God. But seven of these kings were bad kings, who, as it says in the Old Testament, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They engaged in the idolatry of the nations around them. And we're so, we're so quick at times to look at Old Testament idolatry and go, well, what, what's the big deal, really? So they, they went to a pagan temple or they burned a little incense to a, to a false idol. What's the big deal? Let us not forget, folks, that Old Testament idolatry was wrapped up hand in hand with rampant immorality. There were two aspects of Old Testament idolatry that we need to not forget. For one thing, Old Testament idolatry, one of their major practices was child sacrifice. And in fact, in this list, we find a man named Manasseh. If you fast forward down here to verse 10, you'll see Manasseh listed. He was one of the most evil kings that Israel ever had. He reigned for 55 years, and it says that he burned his own son as a sacrifice to a false idol. Old Testament idolatry was not just burning incense to little tiki idols. It was involved in child sacrifice. It was also involved greatly in ritual prostitution. This was a part of what would take place. Idolatry and immorality were linked hand in hand. And by the way, folks, the same is true for us. Whenever we cease worshiping the one true and living God and run after the false gods of our world. It always leads us into immorality. And so we see in the line of these kings a, a similar 
thing happens as it did in the days of the judges. We see this downward spiral. David is the top here. He, he is the greatest of the kings, and everything is good in his time. But then in this 400 years that's represented in the second paragraph, this 400 years in which these kings reigned, we see this downward spiral taking place. Things are going from bad to worse. You get down to Manasseh, 55 years of this evil king reigning over God's people, and just two generations later, it's all done. King Jeconiah was evil as well. And we begin to wonder, as you look at this Old Testament history, you begin to wonder, how are the promises of God that were made to David going to be fulfilled? Look at this promise that God made to King David. Through the prophet Nathan, he spoke, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. That's a strong word, isn't it? And your throne shall be established. How long? Forever. And you watch this downward spiral that takes place during the 400 years of these kings. Things are going from bad to worse. It seems at various points it's all going to fall apart. The wheels are falling off the bus. And you get down to Jeconiah, 586 B.C. Babylon comes in and carries the people off to captivity. The line of kings is broken there. And the word of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 22 is made known. Thus says the Lord Jeremiah spoke this before the events of 586 B.C. This is what's about to happen. Write this down. This is about Jeconiah, that king who was ruling. Jeremiah 22, 30, just jot it down. He says, write this down. This man, write him down as childless. That's the greatest curse that could be inflicted upon a man in the Old Testament days. A man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. doesn't mean a lot to us today, but this is what it meant to those who heard this word. They heard this word and said, well, how can it be then that there will always be a king on David's throne? If the line is being cut off here, how is the promise of God going to be fulfilled? Are our hopes of the Messiah now gone? Is God going to fall short on fulfilling his promise? Is man's wickedness going to keep the plan of God from happening? And yet the amazing thing that we find is this. God always makes a way. If you flip over to Luke chapter 3, I want to show you something just real quick. It won't take long, but it, it strengthens my faith to see these things. Luke chapter 3, we find another account of Jesus' family tree. Now, Luke works a little differently than Matthew does. Matthew begins with Abraham and works his way to Jesus. Luke begins with Jesus there in chapter 3, verse 23. He begins with Jesus and works his way all the way back to Adam. If you thought the name, list of names we just read uh, was a bunch of tongue-tied ones, here's a, there's a whole lot more here that I'm not even gonna, we're not even going to begin to read any of these. But Luke is working his way from Jesus all the way back to Adam. He goes all the way back to the first man. Because Luke's purpose is to establish that Jesus was the Son of Man. But you'll notice something. If you were to compare side by side these lists, they're identical until you work your way to David. And then the lists get different. And many people look at this and go, well, who's right? Which one has the right family tree, Luke or Matthew? 
Somebody's got to be, people, in fact, some who would be critical of the scriptures would say, well, obviously there's a discrepancy in the word of God here. Somebody must be right and somebody must be wrong because the two lists are radically different after you get to David. And yet the interesting thing is, as you look at it, you begin to see that where Matthew's list ends out ends with the line of Joseph. And Luke begins after David with a son named Dave, with the son named Nathan, not Solomon. And he follows that son Nathan, who had every right to sit on the throne but never did. He was of royal lineage, older than his brother Solomon, who ended up as the king. He follows the line of Nathan all the way down to a virgin girl named Mary. Now that may not wow you like it does me. But these are the kinds of things that strengthen my faith in our God. That God had a plan, even with the wickedness of mankind, these, these series of kings that just went from bad to worse, and eventually God said, enough is enough, I'm going to break this line. God had in his hip pocket a back door through which to bring the Messiah, that he could still sit on the throne of David and had every right to. God knew exactly what he was doing. Hear this, church, the wickedness of men will not destroy the plan of God. God will make a way when there seems to be no way. That's what he does here. You can study it on your own. Flip back to Matthew chapter 1 with me. I want to show you just a couple more things this morning from this list that just looks like a bunch of names to us and yet God is working a powerful work through all these many years. Neil, you're going to have to take over the computer. My iPad just died. And so after the deportation to Babylon, 586 B.C., Jerusalem's ransacked by the Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar destroys everything and carries the people off into captivity where they would remain for 70 years exactly according to the plan of God spoken through the prophet of Jeremiah. And then they return and begin to rebuild Jerusalem. But what you find in verses 12 through 16 is this is a bunch of nobodies. The previous paragraph was all nobility, kings whose stories we have recorded in the Old Testament. But you look at this paragraph, and after Zerubbabel in verse 12, we don't know about any of the rest of these guys. They're all nobodies. They all lived in that 400 years of silence, that one page just to the left of where you are, that little blank page in your Bible that represents 400 silent years of history in which God was not speaking to his people in which God was preparing to do a mightier work than they had ever seen, a time in which God was silent and the people surely wondered, will the promises of God be fulfilled or will they remain unfulfilled? And yet God was working in those days to do a mighty work. So just mentioned, no one after Zerubbabel was even mentioned in the Old Testament. The only reason we even know their names is because God listed them here for us through the pen of Matthew. It's great to know, isn't it, that our God still chooses to use nobodies. You don't have to be among the nobility in order to be used by our God. He is the one who often, most often, we find, uses the nobodies. We know Mary and Joseph, but let us be reminded, nobody else did in their day. A poor carpenter who didn't even have enough money when he went to be counted among the census to get a hotel room, even if there had been enough even if there had been a room available, he would not have been able to afford one, most likely. 
and his betrothed, who was about to give birth, had to do so in a stable, which was not the pretty picture that we have on our mantles this time of year. It was most likely a dirty, filthy cave full of stinking animals and all the things that come from stinking animals. And when our Savior was born into the world, He was not laid in a crib with a nice lace trim. He was placed in a feeding trough. And this is how your King came into the world. You see, God's ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. His plans are so much different than what ours would be. And yet his ways are always better. I want you to notice one more thing, though, and this will lead us into where we'll be next week. In verse 16, Matthew takes great pains to proclaim the virgin birth, what Grant mentioned a few minutes ago that would have been scandalous. Another scandal in this line would have been what happened to Mary what was proclaimed to the angel just appeared to everybody else like that there had been fornication and immorality. But God was doing something amazing, and Matthew notes it here. Notice how he, how he words this so carefully. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, and those words of whom in the, Hebrew, in the, in the Greek were here, those words of whom in the Greek are a feminine word which can only refer to Mary of whom Jesus was born. He is taking great pains here to say that while Joseph may have been viewed as the biological father, he was not. She was of child by the Holy Spirit. And that which was produced from her was God in the flesh come to dwell among us who is called the Christ. The same thing that the prophet Isaiah said 700 years earlier, he said, this, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He'll prove to you his promises in this way. But behold, watch, pay attention. That's what the word behold means. Listen up, church. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Come to dwell among us. And so what does all this mean? What do we do? You go, okay, that's nice. That's a good little history lesson for me today. What's the outcome of all these things? What do we do with a list like this? As we read through this, maybe you'll begin again this next year to read through the Bible, and maybe you'll start there in the New Testament, and you'll begin with Matthew chapter 1. I hope that when you read this list from now on, you'll begin to see the glory of God's plan That these who just look like a bunch of names to us represent the power of God and His sovereignty to bring about our Savior in spite of all the obstacles that stood in His way. Verse 17, let's look at it again. And so, Matthew says, here's his wrap-up of this whole part. And so the generations from Abraham to David were how many generations? Fourteen. And from David... To Babylon, how many generations? Fourteen. And from Babylon to the Christ, how many generations? Fourteen. And now we don't quite get the symbolism of fourteen until we understand that in those days, the Jews had a way of referencing important people in their history according to numerical values. You may remember those puzzles that you did as a kid 
where they would give you a, a chart to the side that each number represented a letter. And then you would refer to the chart and you would fill in the letters according to the numbers that were listed there and it would give you a message. Y'all remember those? At the 8 o'clock service, I got a bunch of blank stares like I had three heads when I talked about this. But some of you remember this. I used to do those as a kid and you would get this message out of deciphering the code. It's not unlike what was happening here. When you take the letters of King David's name, the three consonants, they only did it with the consonants in the name, D, V, D, in the Hebrew, and you use their code matching each of those letters up with a number as they would have done, the number by which they would represent King David was, guess what? 14. 14. And so what was Matthew saying to those in his day? With this threefold repetition of 14, the number that represented King David, the one whose throne and that day was empty, the one whom they were looking and saying, who's going to sit on the throne of David? Who's going to fulfill the promises of God? How's it all going to play out? God's been silent for 400 years. Is the promise of God going to fall short? And here's what Matthew is saying, church. Matthew is saying as he's walked through this list, he comes down to the end here and he says, so here's the outcome. Here's what I'm saying. He is the king. Did you hear me? He says to him again, he is the king. And one more time, in case you didn't hear it, he is the king. Jesus Christ is the king who's going to fulfill all the promises of God. Everything that was spoken to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Everything that was spoken all the way back, even to Genesis 3.15, when God spoke to Adam after the curse had fallen upon the ground and they had sinned against God. God said, I'm going to send someone who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He is that king. It's the same promise that God made to Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. He is that king. When God said to David, I'm going to have one king who's going to sit on your throne forever and ever and ever. He is that king. And Matthew is saying to us, he is that king. And Matthew writes to the Jews and says, he is your king. Not many of us in this room probably from Jewish descent. And we say, well, where do we fit? You fit in just as Rahab did. Grafted into this family tree by faith in a God who works all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Church, this is your king. This is your king who is seated even this day upon his rightful throne where he will reign forever and forever and forever according to God's promise what kind of king is he let me leave you with three statements about this king first of all he is the king who calls sinners to repentance he calls sinners to repentance there are plenty of sinners in his family tree many of them who died in their sins without putting their faith in the one true and living God. And this king comes to call sinners to repentance. And no matter how great your sin, he says to you today, I want you to be included in my family. By faith, you can enter in to this long line of those who have walked by faith in him and known the fullness of the promises of God through Jesus Christ. He's calling you to repentance and faith. Number two, he is the king who comes to redeem our brokenness. 
but he didn't do it like we might expect. When we think about a king, we think about someone who sits on a throne and makes decrees that certain things should be done. And his servants are the ones who carry out those decrees, right? But this king, instead of staying on his throne and making decrees that his will should be done, instead stepped off of his throne and into a lowly manger scene. He came as a baby, born of a poor couple there in Bethlehem, lived out his early days in this unknown, out-of-the-way place called Nazareth. The one who deserved to have the utmost and highest place in this world took the lowliest place. And when he entered into his public ministry, it wasn't glorified then either. He basically lived as a homeless person during those three and a half years as he went about teaching and preaching and healing, as he went about proclaiming the kingdom of God of whom he was the king. This king came to redeem our brokenness ultimately by taking our place on an old rugged cross. It was not enough for him. It was not enough for him simply to declare our redemption. He purchased it with his own blood. This is not a king who would remain on his throne and declare to his servants that which must be done. No, he stepped off his throne and did the work himself. And what that says to us is you can stop working. Stop trying to be good enough. Stop trying to earn your way in to God's family. The way has been fully paid at the end in his last breath before he died on that cross. He said, it is finished. The work is done. Everything that God had begun from Abraham all the way down, Jesus said, it's done. Everything that's needed to be done is now done. And all that we're waiting for in our age, now 2,000 years removed from the cross, all that we're waiting for is for God to put the finishing touches on his redemption plan. He's come to redeem our brokenness. And if we'll trust in him, he'll do it. And finally this morning, he is the king who's coming again. He's the king who's coming again. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter addresses this question that was already emerging in the early church. In the early church days there in the first century, there were already those who were asking, well, he said he was coming again. He died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven, and he said that he was coming again. Well, where is he? And Peter writes, not even 50 years removed from the cross. We're now 2,000 years removed. And the same question still persists in the minds of those who would doubt this God. Where is he? Why is he not here yet? And Peter gives this great explanation. He says, God is not slow in keeping his promises. He is merely being patient with you, church. Because there's a work left to be done. There are people left to be saved. There are souls left to be redeemed. And God is being patient with his church in order for that to be accomplished. But he is the king who is coming again. You can mark it down in the same way that in the Old Testament days, they looked forward to the first coming of the Messiah. And for 400 silent years, they wondered, will he actually come? And then he came in a way most unexpected. He will not come in an unexpected way 
this next time. He will come for all to see. No more baby in a manger. A king in all his glory will be displayed. The question will be, will we be ready for his return? Will we be expecting his return? And will we be clinging to his promise? Second Peter chapter 3, I'll leave you with this verse. But according to his promise... According to all the promises of God wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ, according to his purpose, we are waiting for what? For new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Why does righteousness dwell there? Because Jesus dwells there. Righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, here's the word to the church today. Listen up, people of God. Since you are waiting for these, for the fulfillment of all these promises, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. This is how we are to live out our days. Turning from sin and trusting in Christ as a way of life. Not just a one-time deal that we do, get dunked in a baptistry and then go live however we want to. No, we live for Christ because he died for us and rose again that we could have life in him. So we live without spot or blemish, not because we've cleaned ourselves up, but because we were washed in his blood. And we live at peace, not because we've discovered peace for ourselves, but because he is our peace. What did the angels proclaim to those shepherds on that mountainside 2,000 years ago? Glory to God and peace to men among whom his favor rests. And that peace was not a feeling. The peace that God came to bring was the peace of his son, Jesus Christ. Reconciliation with God is had only through him. And now 2,000 years later, as we await his return, the same God who wrote down this genealogy for you, who gave you this list of names that you might see his glorious plan, says to you, will you enter in to the line? Will you trust Christ by faith? Will you give your life to him and believe that all the promises of God are amen? They are so be it in Jesus. Look to him, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame and is now seated at the right hand of God on that throne of David where he will reign forever and ever and ever. Will you be among his people? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. As our worship team comes to share with us one final song. Your head may be just full of all that we've talked about this morning and maybe just swirling with details and this and that and the other. Let me just bring us home this morning with this thought. Of all that we've talked about, of all that Matthew has portrayed for us about this king, it begs this question for us. Is Jesus your king? You see, I believe that in the heart of every man, woman, and child, there is a throne. And there is only room upon that throne for one. And most of us spend the majority of our lives ourselves seated on that throne. 
our own wants and desires ruling and reigning over our lives, our sinful ambitions, our vain conceit captivating our lives. Until one day, by the grace of God, He opens our eyes to see that we are a very poor fit for that throne. There is one who fits it perfectly. The Son of God who stepped off His throne in heaven to step into the mess of our world. He is fitted perfectly to be seated on the throne of your heart, to be your Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, your Christ. The question that remains this morning is will you remove yourself from the throne and enthrone Him there where He belongs? Will you proclaim as many have throughout these many years that Jesus is Lord? That at His name alone, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The only question is, will you do that willingly now? Or will you do it through gritted teeth later? Will you escape the condemnation that your sin deserves? And will you trust in the Savior today? Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. This is the way the King has laid out for us. Will you walk in it by faith? Father, help us. Help us to see that amidst your great and glorious plan, you had in no way forgotten about us. And now you beckon us to come and to join you in things greater than ourselves in plans greater than ours. To be a part of your unfolding plan of redemption and to know the promises that all who walk by faith receive in Jesus alone. Help us to respond to this great news, this great gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing this last song together this morning. My brother Kent and I will be here at the front if you would respond this morning to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take your place in the story of God as one of his children. We invite you to respond. We'd love to share with you how you can know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let's sing this together.